This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And we're going to be joined this morning in The Party Room by Peter Van Onselen, who's the political editor for Channel 10. We're going to talk about plans for reopening the country, reopening our international borders. You remember last week we were talking about the budget and how the government was assuming mid-2022. Well, there's been some pretty strong reaction to that timeline. But before we talk borders, PK, with Peter, let's talk vaccines because because as a nation, the verdict is in, according to a couple of surveys, we are reluctant uh, to be vaccinated. We talk about vaccine hesitancy, and I think it's important to make this point. That's not the same thing as being anti-vaxxers. Very few of us are anti-vaxxers, but a lot of us, it would seem, apparently 29% of us, are currently of the view that we're unlikely or definitely not going to be vaccinated, which is a very high number and a problem because it's nowhere near enough of a 70% to get us to the all-important herd immunity. That's a problem. Yeah, that's absolutely a problem. So we just cannot open our borders and live as close to back to normal, whatever that might be. It's obviously going to be quite a different normal if we don't get those vaccination rates up. Now, there's a couple of issues with this. And I think it's really important, the point that you just made, Fran, that it's not anti-vaxxer, it's hesitancy. So I've spoken anecdotally to people who say they've had every vaccination, right? They're not anti-vaccination. They're just a little worried about this AstraZeneca vaccination Mm. because they're in that cohort, for instance, and they're just a little paranoid about it. And they think, well, since we're at zero transmission, perhaps I'll wait till the end of the year. They're not saying no forever, but they're just not sure that they're ready yet. Yeah. In fact, a lot of my listeners have written in and said, "Um, it's not vaccine hesitancy, it's AstraZeneca hesitancy. And in other words, they want want the mRNA ones because they're hearing better things about those Pfizer and Moderna and they think, well, if I wait long enough, I might get one. Yeah, that's right. And the reason this is such a big problem, of course, is we can't wait till they're maybe getting it at the end of the year if we were on track to open borders and get back to normal. So there is a sense of actual a crisis or, or urgency around this. And yet the behaviour we're seeing in the community does not match the need And that's because we're living in what I think is a sort of prison utopia. That's what I call it. It's like (laughs) our our island, Gilligan's Island, has become, you know, a safe place to to live. And I think that's wonderful. And, of course, our domestic economy has been okay as we just kind of trading with each other, so to speak, like travelling inside our own borders. But the sustainability of that as the rest of the world gets vaccinated is clearly going to be a problem now. I reckon if you look at all the evidence, the government has dropped the ball when it comes to pushing the vaccine message. Greg Hunt was saying, it's the health minister, just we're recording this Thursday morning on the Wednesday, you know, it's all of our job, get out there and tell people to 
to get the jab. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's not a day I don't got to bang on about this, and I know you're the same, Fran, but I don't think just us banging on about it is enough. We need clearly a national coordinated campaign. We need it to be simpler. I think the way that the vaccine rollout has been managed is part of the confusion, the sort of stages. It's 1A, it's 1B, it's this vaccine, it's this one. It's slow, it's not happening, they're missing people. Yeah, you go to the GP or you go to the mass centre, and some people are like, well, I'm out. There's not a simple message, and everyone knows with campaigning, you've got to keep it simple, stupid. It's the KISS theory, yeah? Mm. Um, And if it's not simple you're not getting the sort of behaviour you need from the community. And and we need to establish a sense of urgency around this because, I don't know, I feel like people have forgotten just how bad it is to let a virus like this rip and how important, uh, of course, vaccines are to stop um, these terrible diseases uh, absolutely decimating communities. I I think you're right, but if it's urgency that is the message coming from the the health minister yesterday, well then what about the message coming from the Prime Minister on the same day in a radio interview? He was sort of playing down the reluctance. He, He was saying, well, there's plenty of time, this is a quote, plenty of time to have the chat with others who are a bit hesitant, that's all right, free country, they should talk to their doctor. So he was really playing down any concern about Australians taking their time and going a bit slow. And it just struck me that that seemed to be out of step from the message coming from the health experts, certainly from the tourism industry, but even the health minister. Clearly the campaign that is going on is not working, is not convincing people. There needs to be a lot of government action and bringing in, you know, good minds from, you know, public health experts and and campaigns and ad agencies and all the rest of it to come up with the right messaging. But that messaging from the Prime Minister struck me as a bit odd and a bit sort of off kilter. Yeah, off kilter is the perfect way to describe it. Look, I just think that it's rather sad. I feel very, very sad to see such a fantastic effort we've all made Mm. at changing everything to keep our country at zero. It has been an enormous effort. It's taken an enormous toll on people. Everyone in Victoria knows that better than anywhere, just smashing that second wave here. But if we don't have the next phase planned and the conversations that come with that, Fran, when we do get to that critical vaccination rate and, you know, hopefully we do, we desperately need to, what happens then when we open the borders? How much virus can we accept living within our community, hospitalisations? All all uh, of that. that. But but even before that, I mean, the threat is still out there and you just have to look at a country like Singapore, a country like Taiwan in particular, who'd done so well like we have, of keeping the community transmission low. But now they're locking down again because the variants have arrived. These variants that are coming from India, coming from the UK, um, other countries, you know, they're creating problems. So it's important, you know, as many of us as possible, get vaccinated before those variants get into the community because it could go, you know, very badly, very quickly again if we don't. Yeah, that's right. So there were people like me desperate to get vaccinated, but just not not anywhere near getting one, right? So that's part of the problem too. You know, we talk about the hesitancy and there's the overeager people like my good <laughs> self who still can't get a vaccine. So, you know, we, we're living in a pretty weird times, I've got to say, as we roll out this thing. And the best example of just how weird these times are is... The problem and what I think is a bungle of the rollout in disability care. Now, it was revealed this week 
at the Disability Royal Commission that just under a thousand disability care residents and around, uh, well, I think it was you know more than fifteen hundred workers have been protected against COVID nineteen despite the the country's vaccination rollout. Just to give you a sense, that's under five percent of disability care residents. Mm. That is, oh lordy, in just one week in South Australia, there was only six people in disability home care in disability care have been vaccinated. Only six people. It is embarrassing, right? These are vulnerable Australians. The rollout has been shameful, really, that 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 is the race. And so much so that even the government concedes it's not good enough. The Prime Minister conceded this week when questioned that it was not good enough Mm. because it clearly is not. But how are we in this situation? How did we get to this to, to have a situation where people in, in in this kind of care, where we thought they were a priority group, clearly aged care was put first. So that was, the you know, the, they're considered the more vulnerable people because they're older and older people are the most vulnerable to this disease. But, you know, this is just, I think, tells a bigger story about how this has has not worked so far. And yes, they've tried to accelerate it now. There have been some changes. State governments have been key here with these mass vaccination hubs. But still, I just don't think we're anywhere near where we're meant to be. And I think it's well, a really, really big shame. Yeah, I think the, well, the Royal Commission um, called it abject failure. Labor's called it national disgrace. The disability community are very angry, very upset and still very confused. I mean, yes, the government did prioritise the aged care sector, but that message didn't get communicated to the people with disability. They were told right from the start they were a priority group because their needs are a priority. They are amongst the most vulnerable to this virus in the community. Many of them living in their homes, behind closed doors, too scared really to come out and, and sort of mix with the general community until they're vaccinated. And, and so it's it's imperative for them that they get it vaccinated. And they didn't know until it was revealed um, in, parla- in a Senate committee recently and then to the Royal Commission that there'd been this decision to prioritise aged care um, because obviously, you know, the vast majority of people who died from COVID had died in, in aged care. But People with disability didn't know that. And when they found it out that a lot of them, this is the message I got on the radio when people were speaking to me, they felt like they were being deprioritised again. They were, they felt like, again, they just don't matter as much as others. Now, that's obviously, I think, not the truth, but that's how it felt when this information became public because it hadn't been communicated well. So now those figures are out. Now people are jumping to now the aged care community, thank goodness, in residential aged care has virtually been 100% vaccinated. So the vaccine rollout can move fully into residential aged care. And that's not so easy. It's not like an aged care home where you might have 300 people in one residence. You might have a disability care home that's only got four people in it or eight people in it. So it's going to be a lot harder and a lot take a lot longer to do. Um, I think it now has been um, brought to public attention and that is happening. But it really was unnecessarily uh, um, uh, alarm and an unnecessary delay, I think. I can't see why we really couldn't have done done this better and done both uh, more more fully and more quickly at the same time. That's right. Now, at the same time as this huge debate around our vaccination rates, our borders, all of those huge issues which have an enormous impact economically and also obviously for the health of Australians continues, the government made a decision this week or an announcement in relation to a decision, which I think is, again, very controversial. And I've got to say very... mm, 
not very liberal party if you look at sort of the ethos and the ideology of this party historically. They've decided to invest $600 million ahead of a by-election in the Hunter Valley region um, on a, a gas a gas plant so they can deal so they can deal with uh, you know energy issues in New South Wales in the Hunter region and this has been huge and hugely controversial uh, labor's chris bowen has said the move is a waste of taxpayer money but even Labor's a bit split on this, Fran, because the local member, you won't be surprised, you'll remember him, Joel Fitzgibbon, he says um, it's a good idea. So this, the energy wars are back in the political cycle as well. And I reckon it's the perfect time to bring in our guests. What do you reckon? Absolutely, because you're right, it has been huge and there's plenty to unpick around the decision itself and then there's always the timing. Peter Van Onslen, the political editor for Channel 10 and a columnist for the Australian newspaper. Welcome to the party room. Thanks for having me. And so much more besides. Yes, PVO, lovely to have you here in the podcast. Um, Peter, we were just talking about the announcement from the government of the uh, gas plant, that the mm. government is going to fund $600 million at Curry Curry in the Hunter Valley. The announcement came, well, there was a few interesting things about the timing of this announcement. <laughs> <There were. laughs> um, but one of them was that it came on the same day that the International Energy Agency released a report urging all countries to not commission any more fossil fuel development projects or coal-fired power stations in particular. So interesting timing given this government announcement, promising a taxpayer-funded gas plant uh, at the same time as that. What are we doing? And also in the week, just days before, a by-election in the very electorate of the Hunter. That's that's awful timing. On that front, and al- on it's that a front alone, oh, should they have held off? So cynical. Yeah, I'm sure there was no politics in this. Well, I mean, I that's mean, just a coincidence. Was it just surely. politics? Is this pork barrelling to some degree under a guise of something different, or, you know, was it just a bad judgment? Should they have held it off? Look, I, I think that they didn't want to hold it off because their intent did have a lot of politics underpinning it, no doubt about that. So the pork barrel inside of it around the jobs at the local level. I mean, it's uh, huge, 600 oh, million bucks into an electorate three, not, four days before a by-election. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting for a cooperation moment as well between Commonwealth and state government. It speaks to the repaired relationship, if you like, between Gladys Berejiklian and Scott Morrison. If you rewound to the fires, I don't know that you would have seen quite that level of political cooperation. But it is hard not to be cynical, isn't it, about the timing of it. But then uh, the, you know, the reality of that international announcement, they just would have thought, oh, gee, how did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? I mean, on that advice, remember Malcolm Turnbull just a few weeks ago came out actually on RM Breakfast and, and called for no new minds in the Hunter Valley. He mm. made the point that there's all these planning applications out there. There's already enough mines in the development to have excess coal for requirements and was urging the state government to stop no more new mining approvals. That cost him a job as chair of a government committee that yep. he'd only just received. Now, here's the International Energy Agency basically saying the same thing, aren't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, the politics was in the mix, wasn't it, with Malcolm Turnbull in that position. Matt Keane wouldn't have liked having to walk back or more accurately crawl back from that appointment that he made with Malcolm <laughs> cool, Turnbull. But, <laughs> but the Nats were adamant. Oh, they were. And and it was, you know, it's the Nats by election to lose, isn't it? So, you know, in the wake of where that was at and the relationship between the Nats and the Libs in that state sphere, quite apart from the fallout from some of the feds, particularly Scott Morrison and others, about that appointment by Matt Keane, it was a polarising decision, uh, whether it was right or wrong. And of course, this this decision and announcement the government has made at this very interesting time in history 
uh, has really led to a very interesting response, I think, from the Federal Labor Party, which is creating its own angst internally. They they say that this is an example for the government to intervene into the market like this. It means that that it's not just about it's not about market failure; it's about their failure, right? Their mm. energy policy failure. And I think they make a good point here that it's been a very ad hoc, uh, messy system, the government has really failed to um, deal with this substantially and that that it, it is not sort of a typical Liberal Party response, this kind of Liberal, this kind of market intervention, PVO. What should we make of what's going on here? Well, and I, I think that point being made by Labor, particularly by someone like Chris Bowen, is really interesting as well when it comes to portfolio changes because he is someone who would be more acutely aware than most, I think, with his background as well as his own philosophical positioning to point out that this is not a traditional Liberal position. You mean as a uh, former shadow treasurer? Exactly, a former shadow treasurer and also someone who, who thinks and writes quite deeply about philosophical leanings of of treasurers past as well as parties and and political governments of of, of different eras. But it's not just that it's uh, not a very sort of liberal economic policy move, really. Um, It's also against the advice of the regulators. The regulators came out and said, well, when Liddell Power Plant closes down, this is what's prompted all of this, uh, we're going to need something around 200 megawatts Mm. of extra dispatchable, flexible dispatchable um, in it, power into the grid to keep it stabilised. Now, we've already got one company come in and getting close to that. No one said we need a 1,000, which is what this is due to deliver, this gap that the, the government's filling here. Um, so the regulator says we didn't need it. The experts say we didn't need it. The IEA says we shouldn't do it, and yet they're doing it. Now, surely there's some more scrutiny should be applied to this. Labor's calling for the business case to be made public. Is that a good idea? I I think it is. Uh, I think whenever there's government intervention, notwithstanding continual claims of market sensitivity about the excuse not to release these sort of things, I think it is reasonable for it to be released. But look, I'm no defender uh, of this government decision, I think, and I think it's driven by the politics as much as anything. In terms of party philosophy, the thing about Scott Morrison as a leader, of course, is he's not your traditional liberal. Uh, he's happy to intervene in the market. He's he's not that sort of you know John Howard esque liberal. Although he had willingness to intervene when it suited him too, from time to time. Just just a pragmatist, right? <laughs> yeah, that's mm. right. Well, he's a bit, but a stubborn pragmatist, which sometimes butts heads with the concept of it. But look, uh, there's there's little doubt in my mind that the government are trying to tiptoe through this. I think Labor's really well placed to try to hold them to account. Now, I know I'm going back to the personalities here, but I do. Do think Chris Bowen in that policy space is the right person uh, to highlight the problems of the government. Uh, but if you are going to market intervene, uh, surely you try to be on the right side of history around that. And that's not what this kind of uh, fossil fuel orientated approach I is. I mean, there are batteries and that's what people exactly. are screaming from the sidelines. We could be putting this kind of, you know, support in developing, you know, better bat- battery capacity, which is what we're talking about here is needing this sort of firm, what they call firming power, flexible, dispatchable power for when the, the sun don't shine and the the wind don't blow, as they say. It's hard not to think that as the decades roll by, this will be one of many decisions that people Mm. will look back on and just think, wow, what a waste of money. Now, you talk about Chris Bowen and the Labor Party holding them to account on this and really trying to zero in on the spending, the methodology, Mm. their lack of broader action and sort of their complacency on energy policy. But Joel Fitzgibbon, who was a frontbencher in a pretty key space here, is saying this is a good idea. Um, what kind of is it? Is it sort of a small di- division PVO, or could this be a bigger rumbling in the Labor Party? I mean, you know, it's hard for him, isn't it? He has to kind of back it because it's obviously a bit of a vote grabber 
if you look at the actual electorate. Well, yeah. he is the member for... He is, and that's right in his space, and he almost lost it uh, at the last election to One Nation, uh, of all things. So it's a, it's a difficult one for him. I can never quite get my head around what drives Joel Fitzgibbon on these issues on a day-to-day or a month-to-month basis. Isn't it obvious here? Well, I think there's different things driving them. Yes, there's the local side. That's definitely a factor. Uh, you know, he's just trying to win re-election. But by the same token, he's now stepped off the front bench. There are factional issues that are always at play for Joel Fitzgibbon as well sometimes in these sort of situations. Then there's the reality of his relationship with the broader left. Then there's his relationship specifically with Mark Butler, who he's never been a big fan of when they've squared off on some of these issues in his past portfolio. And then there's his relationship with Albo, which has been good as well as bad at different moments in time. Now, I suspect it's a mixture of all of that when it comes to Joel Fitzgibbon, probably predominantly driven by a desire uh, to stay popular in his local electorate. But then by the same token, he's been around for so long, he's on the old pension scheme. Is he really looking to stay in politics or is this a bit of a Martin Ferguson play uh, where you wonder what figure will he look like in the aftermath of a political career where this suits both how he feels as well as where he wants to go next? Yeah, well, this is difficult territory for Labor. We know that because of the, you know, the traditional working base. The, these these coal communities used to be, you know... Heartland. Ro- heartland yeah. and, and not so much anymore. So it's a difficult... It's a, it's a difficult street that they walk, and that's what they're accusing the government of doing as part of this too, I think. Um, Peter, we've been speaking, Pika and I, about vaccines. The Morrison government was announced in the budget, is now working towards a mid-2022 deadline for opening up international borders. But since that announcement was made, there has been a hell of an outcry um, uh, from business, from the tourism sector, from airlines, even some Liberal MPs saying that is too slow or as Liberal Premier Gladys Berejiklian put it, it's just not ambitious enough. We, we've been talking about some of the problems within the rollout itself. Mm. Is that what's behind the slow opening timetable? Is it is it the health advice and, you know, just the desire to get everyone vaccinated? Uh, Labor thinks it's the political advice. What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm starting to lean that way. You know, in weeks gone by, I would have said this was because of the slow vaccine rollout. So they they were hamstrung by the errors made on that front. Uh, and, you know, that includes obviously getting our hands on the vaccine. Uh, but now I'm starting to think that the Fortress Australia concept Ooh, yeah. has its own political value to them. They've seen, obviously, they started this value with we will decide who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they'll come. Oh, yeah, when that works for them. Vote people, then we saw state premiers of different political persuasions using it to their advantage, shutting down borders uh, and, if you like, turning that issue back on a Commonwealth government that has done it so well at the, at the national level, politically speaking so well, I mean. Now I think we're back to that. Fortress Australia is popular. Uh, there, there is vaccine hesitancy as well, which is a real thing, and they need to overcome that and they, they want to overcome it but they don't want to upset people as they try to overcome it. So these things, I think, are coming together in what, let's face it, is an election year, whether we're talking the calendar year or the fiscal year. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're into an election year uh, in a 12-month sense at least. So I think that the government knows that they, on the increase in health advice, they have to open up international borders and accept, and this wouldn't be the way they would term it, but accept that you have to let COVID rip once you've got full mm. vaccination or close enough to because it does they won't they don't like this comparison but it does become no more dangerous when you are vaccinated in a health sense than the flu uh, mm. and once that's the case then you just have to try to manage it but you can't stay closed off for economic reasons and as well as a host of other but it's popular to stay yeah. closed off for now well so popular that i think it's important to just 
go down a trip down memory lane because back in May 2020, this is how differently the Prime Minister was looking at things. Here he is. These are cautious first steps, but important first steps. You know, we could, you can stay under, under the doona forever and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll never face any danger. Um, but uh, we've got to get out from under the doona uh, at some time. And if not now, well, then when? If not now, when? Mid-2022, PK. Uh, doona. The doona. And now we love the doona. It's like winter and we are under the warm doona. It is very warm and snuggly. We are snuggle-buggling as a nation. You sounded briefly like Donald Trump there. That was that was, that was a scary I, rendition. I, my hands are very similar. Keep going. I tell you what, though, I'd forgotten about that exact phrase until you played it then, and now it is back seared in my memory as it was at the time. Words can come back to haunt you, can't they? And Scott Morrison has never been consistent, uh, and that is an example of the inconsistency now that the politics suits him going in another direction. Well, that's true. And it is, I mean, to be a slightly more generous about it, it may just be he learnt the lesson of that. He was too cavalier back then. You mm. know, remember, you know, another former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, he was out and about around the world calling Victoria's lockdown a health dictatorship. You know, now the polls show that people like it. The reality shows these state lockdowns worked. Prime Minister was too cavalier, I think, with that kind of comment back then, and he's learnt that lesson, perhaps. And you also have to take people with you, and and he wasn't doing that early in the pandemic either when he was gyrating between going to the footy and then shutting everything down and preventing handshakes. This is, in a sense, its own version of that. People get comfortable with lockdowns. It might not always just be because it's the right thing to do. It might be a mixture of it playing to people's natural sense of, of wanting to shut down, but also the health advice was that that was not a bad thing to do, certainly from state health officers. Yet now we're being increasingly slowly starting to be told that it's time to open up and we have to learn to live with COVID because once vaccinated, the game changes. But it does take time for people to catch up with that. Look, it does take time, but I also think our government has been not very nimble with this. I mean, the virus is being nimble, sadly, and we Mm. can see countries that thought they'd cracked it, like Taiwan and and Singapore, having to shut down again because of the variants. Um, I think we've been a bit black and white. You've got to be under the doona? No. Uh, You've got to come out from under the doona? You know, you've got to open up? Oh, now it's no, we can't open up yet. You know, it's, it's too dangerous. Do we need some more nuanced response to the way we manage this with the quarantine, for instance, talking of home quarantine. The PM liked that idea a few weeks ago. Now is no mention of that yet, not time. Um, but also bringing in, you know, foreign students, bringing in agricultural workers. It's not beyond our capacity, surely, to be able to do this and manage it safely. We just have to be prepared to put the infrastructure in place and take a little bit of a risk. The unis are saying, we keep giving you a plan for how we can do this. And yet you don't respond. You don't mm. give us an answer. The government seems to be just like fending everything off, saying what we're doing now is working and what we're doing now mm. is working. But in fact, we need to get to some kind of nuanced stage response here. I think one of the problems is that until we have that level of uh, herd immunity that comes with the wider rollout of the vaccine, they're scared politically to move too fast lest something goes wrong. Yes. And, and frankly, even one, I mean, we're at about, what, three and a half million vaccinated and we need it to be around 80%. So we're a long way off that. Uh, yes, we're starting to roll out more quickly now, yeah. but it's still even at the quicker number is going to take a long time. And it, to me, it's interesting because at one level, the hesitancy around having purpose-built quarantine facilities is 
presumably, I can't think why else other than politics, it's, it's because mm. they think that we may not need them once fully vaccinated and, and we can move to alternatives. But who knows, right? Who knows? Who why knows? don't we just crack on and build some? Money's not an issue at the moment. Let's be frank <laughs> no, about no, it. No. Get on with it. <laughs> oh, we just spent $600 million in the Hunter Valley. Right. Um, I mean, you know, not afraid at all. Look, yeah, the other part of this that I really want to explore with you, PVO, before we bid you farewell is... I feel like the federal government has kind of vacated the space of articulating the next steps, what you say about what happens, what, mm. what's the rate we need to get to a vaccination before we can safely open the borders because they keep saying we'll open them when it's safe to do so. Well, when will it be safe to do so? When will they articulate that? They won't, but we know Gladys Berejiklian um, entered that debate in the last couple of days uh, talking about, you know, basically an 80% vaccination rate. That they haven't provided a national campaign to get everyone, which we were reflecting on before, Fran, to get everyone um, vaccinated. Is it just fear? Is it that they just want other people to do this work for them and they just want to remain fortress-like? I don't actually kind of get it. Yeah, I think they'd love to get under the doodle and let it be a state <laughs> problem, frankly. Look, it, it, it's, it's hard for them, and I don't say that in a sympathetic way. Uh, I think it's hard for them because even if they get to the 80% uh, vaccination rate or, or 90 or 95%, herd immunity comes into it to some extent when you get to those high numbers with it being less transmitted uh, because even though you can get COVID when we you're We can get it, but you don't end up on well, a ventilator, no, hopefully, in ICU. Isn't that it? Exactly. But that's only for those who are vaccinated. So it's a little bit harder to get it when you're vaccinated, but you can still get it and mm. you can still spread it. So in a sense, if you're part of the anywhere between 5 and 30% of people who aren't vaccinated, if you get it, you are every bit as risk of getting as sick or dying as has been the case at any moment in the pandemic, perhaps more so now than ever with these more vir- uh, yeah. with these more difficult Variants. strains. Uh, so the problem that they've got is whatever the percentage of people who don't get vaccinated, being an anti-vaxxer is more risky with COVID, infinitely more so than a lot of other things that anti-vaxxers might choose not to get. And I think the government's a little bit scared about that because if that's a larger percentage of the population that fall into that category, even if we get to Gladys Berejiklian's 80% Mm. mantra, that's one in five voters uh, who are going to be severely sick or die if they get COVID, and they're not going to be happy with the government that's cracked the borders open and let it rip. Mm, When you put it that way, PVO, thanks for joining (laughs) us. Good to chat. (laughs) See you, PVO. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, and this week's question comes from Sean, who writes, The government has set a goal of lowering the unemployment rate, but people are classed as employed if they do one or more paid hours of work. Does measuring the rate this way, run the risk of creating more casual and part-time jobs instead of full-time? Has any party proposed changing how we define employed people? And that is a good question. It's one of the big critiques, isn't it, Fran, of the measure? Yeah, and uh, I'm not, I I can't answer whether any party's proposed changing the definition because I'm unclear on that. I know the definition got close changed some time ago. It's been in place for a while. Does it run the risk of creating more casual and part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs? I think the reality is that the economy is moving that way anyway. That's why you hear the ACTU talking always about employed and underemployed, because there's a lot of people who you're right, still come up on the numbers, the statistics as employed, but they are underemployed. They want more hours. And the way the economy is moving with more casualization, but also the gig economy, so 
people who are working unattached, if you like, um, and they're working ad hoc hours. It suits some in flexibility, some in terms of flexibility, but many others would like more work, and it's 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 interfering, I suppose, with the real picture we have of level of employment in this country. Now, the the Treasurer has made much of our great success in Australia of bringing back jobs after the pandemic, a huge number of jobs being created, but it's it's not it's a bit opaque how much mm. of that is full-time and how much of that is very, very, very not full-time. So that's a thing politically, I suppose. But in terms of our economy, it's why we need to be looking at measures to make sure that um, people who wor- are working as contractors, are working in the gig economy, have better protections because that's the way of work. That's the way work is going for many, many people. Um, but it, just because they might like that flexibility, it doesn't mean that they don't deserve more protections. I think that's part of the issue here. Yeah, and, and it's it's true that underemployment, as it's called, that mm. if you're working an hour a week and you're considered to be employed, doesn't mean you only want that hour. No. <laughs> and that's the point, right? You, you often And it's a real problem for people because look at the rents in our capital city for instance, you know, if you're on casual work, if you're on contract work, if you're working in the gig economy, how are you ever going to save enough to not even think about buying a place but rent a place given the rents in some of our capital cities? Yeah, it's absolutely right. Well, that's it for The Party Room. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room. You can email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for us. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.